to the City Church Podcast. We hope that you will be abundantly blessed by this message. If you would like to find out more about the city, please log on to our website, www.thecity.sg. Well, as uh, PD said, you know, we are on a, a series uh, indefinitely. You know, we are talking about the soul. Uh, next week, we're going to take a break. We're going to have a fantastic guest because Steve is going to be with us, and I think it's going to be phenomenal. Uh, but we're just going to keep going uh, in this series until, until you guys get it, huh? Yeah? How many of you have been helped by, by the series, yeah? You know? Yeah? I, I know a few life groups uh, did the, the material, and so um, if you miss uh, any of the sermons, you know, there's a, a little sermon um, recap uh, notes thing that I'll do up, and your life group leaders will get it to you. If you're not currently part of a life group, I want to encourage you to uh, sign up for, for one, you know, if you need a bit of help or uh, direction to go to, you can look for the guy in Salmon, or you can look for me, and uh, we'll point you, point you the right way, right? Yes. Anyone in the front row, basically. And so I uh, want to get you pointed the right direction. Amen. You guys doing good? Yeah. How many of you are glad to be in church you know, for Sunday service? Yeah. I tell you, man. I think, you know, um, I was just having a, a thought uh, in front. And, um, you know, we are all familiar with the word Sunday service. And um, I think the misconception or, like, the, the thought that has infiltrated uh, most of the churches, um, Sunday service equates to me coming to church to receive some form of service. That um, the staff or the clergy puts up a service, puts up a performance for you. But really, you know, Sunday service is our opportunity collectively as a church to serve the Lord, to serve the body together. And we do so, you know, by, by praying for one another, by praising together, and by being present. Amen? Right? Service is not uh, something that we receive, but it's something that we get to give, we get to bring to the table every Sunday. Well, I'm glad we started on that note. Let's pray. <laughs> well, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to come into your house this morning. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of service. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of bringing something into your presence. That which was restricted, that which was only, uh, that privilege that was only given to the high priest, now we get to freely partake and we get to freely uh, give. And so, Lord, we ask that this morning, God, that we will come with uh, our hearts open, ready to receive from your word, but not just that, but ready to give, ready to pour out, ready to be a blessing to the person on our right and our left. Lord, help us, God, be people that will live beyond ourselves, God. Help us be a people that will have a vision for blessing the ones on our right and our left. Lord, we desire to be a giving church. Not just in our finances, but we will give of our lives. We will break the bread, we will break a portion of our lives and feed those around us. God, we thank you for this awesome privilege of hearing from your word. And God, I ask that, uh, that people will not be impressed by uh, the depth of my research or the words that I speak, but they will be touched, encountered by your Holy Spirit. Spirit of God, we invite you to be among us. Touch us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have a lot of ground to cover. I'm just going to be very honest. Um, last week, we had eight pages. This week, we have 11. <laughs> so, um, I'm going to talk very fast. Okay? And here's how this thing is going to work out. Okay? Once you get it, let me know that you get it, and I'll stop elaborating, and then we'll move on. All right? But I, I think you know, this is going to help some of you. I, I think this is really going to uh, really help and really... Uh, uh, aid you in a walk. You know, I know some of you don't really need help and some of you are beyond help, but <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Hope in Jesus. Uh, yeah. Okay, Pastor can I tell a joke? Uh, huh? Okay. Um, I was really uh, impacted by uh, this thing that I read recently. You know, uh, it, these are words inscribed on the tombstone of one Anglican bishop in Westminster Abbey. It goes, When I was young and free and my imagination had no limits, I dreamt of changing the world. As I grew older and wiser, I discovered the world would not change. So I shortened my insights and somewhat and decided to change only my country. However, it, was, it too seemed immovable. As I grew into my twilight years in one last desperate attempt, I settled for changing only my family, those closest to me, but alas, they would have none of it. 
And now as I lie on my deathbed, I suddenly realize if I had only changed myself first, then by example, I would have changed my family. From their inspiration and encouragement, I would then have been able to better my country and who knows, I may have even changed the world. To quote the words of a great poet, take a look at yourself, make the change. No, never mind. This is why we are on this, on this series of, of soul prosperity. You know? um, the belief is this, you know, that our external world is best impacted and defined by what goes on internally within us. The Bible says this in 3 John, that I desire that you prosper in all things, in everything, even as your soul prospers. The implication is that what goes on internally is meant and designed to impact what goes on externally. Amen? The Lord has that intention for your life and mine, that we will not uh, have our internal world defined by our external circumstances, but instead shift those circumstances by what goes on within us. Think of Jesus in a boat. He had perfect peace to sleep in that storm. Therefore, he had that peace to release, to come the storm. And that's the Lord's desire for your life and mine, that we will have a thriving, healthy internal world. What is the soul? You know, we, we talked about the soul last week, and the soul is this, you know, the soul is your internal world. David says this, I will bless the Lord. I don't know, bless the Lord, O my soul, and let all that's within me bless His holy name. So is your internal world. Amen? Following me? <clears throat> the Bible says this, that love is patient. We are no strangers to that, that verse you know, in, in 1 Corinthians. And um, how many of you can safely assume that God desires for us to be patient? Yes? Yeah? Pretty clear cut, huh? How many of you know that waiting is not the same as being patient? It's not the same. We all wait in life. You know, we all uh, queue up for stuff. We all wait for certain things to pan out. We wait a lot. We wait for the bus. But that does not equate to patience. Patience is the posture in which you wait. Does that make sense? So you can wait, you can do the act, but not necessarily have the posture of patience. God desires for us to be patient. Can I put it to you that God is not just concerned with what you do, but how you do it. He's concerned with the posture of your heart. He's not just concerned about how you do life, but the posture the heart condition, the internal reality in which we live life. That's why we're talking about the soul. Because what goes on internally, your internal world matters to God. He came to save your soul. You're making sense. We explored uh, two concepts last Sunday, and one it's you know we are made of body, soul, and spirit. Uh, there's a word for it, tripartite, or three parts. Uh, it's different from God. You no, know, God is triune, which means that He is three beings yet one. But we human beings are one being made up of three parts: body, soul, and spirit. The second concept we explored last Sunday is uh, just as we have physical needs, the soul has needs as well. I talked a bit about. Uh, uh, the different uh, signs uh, that, that uh, we exhibit as, as people that shows that we have a deficiency in the needs department. All right, you know, this is how you know your soul has needs. You know, there are signs. There are things that you exhibit. You know, and I talked about three signs, uh, emotional inconsistency, uh, morbid, uh, consistent fear of failure. And I forgot the last one. I'm pretty sure it was good. Anyone remember last last point? What? Anxiety. Yeah, you're constantly overwhelmed. Yes, so those three points. You know, just as, um, you know, how many of you have ever been hangry? I, I learned that word fairly recently. Hangry, it's the, a mesh of the words hungry and angry. You know, it's you're to the point of hunger and you're so frustrated that you dive into angry, but you're still hungry, you know, and that's a, a sign of, of a need, right? You know, your stomach starts glug, 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 and then your emotion starts getting out of whack and you start hitting your husband and... No, I'm just kidding. But, but these, are, these are signs, right? That there is a physical need. 
And just as there are signs to a physical need, there are signs to the soul's needs as well. You know, I talked about uh, four needs of the soul. And I just want to recap. Here, here's what I believe are four primary needs of the soul that there are, uh, there's something that all of us have. And it's not just uh, exclusive to a certain people group, but all of us have these needs. And here are the four needs. You know, I believe the soul has a need for significance. The soul has a need for satisfaction. The soul has a need for security. And the soul has a need for solace, for S's, put in effort. Um, this morning, I want to talk about the soul's need for significance. And, um, you know, there are many ways that, that you know, we can approach uh, significance you know, or define significance or express what significance looks like for, for us. You know, it can look like finding purpose, meaning, and fulfillment in what you do. Significance may look to some like influence and impact. I think the mistake we make in approaching significance is we equate significance to prominence. And we measure our significance in life by how prominent we are or how popular we are. That's a trap. Because your prominence and your popularity fluctuates. It's not consistent. And if you base your significance on something that isn't consistent, can I put it to you that you will find yourself going through, find yourself going through spirals up and down, you know, and constantly having that inner conflict, inner battle, because you place your security of your significance in something else or in something that is not absolute. That making sense. The traditional definition of significance means to be of, to be worthy of attention. To be worthy of attention. You know, let, let me uh, drop an example for you. you know. um, if, let's say, um, point of PD. If I tell you, okay, or, yeah, maybe, let's just resume. If I tell you, okay, that you need to pay attention to PD, like he's going to do amazing things, pay attention, watch his life, you know, it's going to do amazing things, like you need to watch, you need to watch. Most of you will listen to me to some extent, yes? But, if let's say a person of greater importance than me, you know, like, let's say the Queen of England comes into this place and tells you, like, watch Daniel. Daniel will do amazing things. And, <clears throat> right, you will pay attention to what she's saying. And arguably, but I, I believe it, no, it's not arguable, but you will pay more attention to what she's saying, right? Because she's a person of greater importance. Makes sense. Because he, he, she says that he is worthy of attention. Therefore, you know, you align your perspective, you align your attention levels to whatever this person of importance is saying. Significance. You and I were worthy of the attention of the Lord God Almighty. We were worthy of his time, his effort, and his son. Your significance then is no longer tied to someone else's opinion of you or your popularity or your prominence. Popularity and prominence occurs because people around you have a favorable opinion for you. And so you tie in some way your significance to people's opinion for you on your popularity. But there is one that supersedes all of that, that supersedes any opinion, positive or negative. And that is God's opinion of you. I'm making sense. The level of significance you experience is tied to what he says. Because his voice, his words, his opinions supersedes every other opinion. Am I making sense? In some ways, you know, we, we often tag our significance to our ability to perform or ability to produce. You know, and we all do that to, to some degree. You know, like the, I feel more significant. I feel more of worth and of value to people, to an organization. Or I feel uh, 
worthy and valuable as, a, as an individual by how much I can bring to the table, by how much I can perform. Yeah, we all do that. Yes? Can I, can I suggest to you that, that that is also a trap? Simple biology will tell you that as you age, your performance levels will go down. You're no longer as sharp a thinker. You're no longer as active, no longer as physical. You will uh, you know, find yourself going on a downward, spiral, uh, downward trajectory because of simple biology. And so that will mean that at some point, okay, your significance or your performance level will plateau and then go on a downward trajectory. And because you, know, you are performing less or less able to produce, you feel less significant. The significance that the Lord wants you to experience or you are to experience as believers in Christ is consistent, is constant, and is eternal. And that significance is not based on what you're able to do, but what was done for you. Think about this. We're all familiar, as G, uh, uh, all familiar with the, the truth that Jesus redeemed us. But how many of you know that Jesus wasn't just a redeemer, he was redemption's price? He did not just purchase you, but he offered his life as a ransom for yours. And so picture, there was a price tag on your life. And he gave his life in response to that price. What does that say? It says then to us that now my life, okay, whether you're convinced or not, was worth the life of the Son of God. And because it was worth the life of the Son of God, now the price tag or my value is attached to the price that was paid for me. My value and my worth was determined by the price that was paid for me. His life. Whenever we speak of ourselves as unworthy, as unvaluable, whenever we accuse a person of being unvaluable, unworthy, insignificant, we make Jesus a liar. Because he said that you were worth it. He said that you are valuable. He said that you are significant. And when we speak in a contrary manner, we contradict the price. We contradict the words that Christ has spoken over us. You are that significant. The most important being in all the universe, in all of existence, says that you are worthy. Nothing else in life, no circumstance, no people, has a better word than that. Because he supersedes all that. You are that significant. Are you with me? I define this significant as intrinsic value and worth. Intrinsic is, it means essential. It means occurring naturally. Why the word intrinsic? Because you know, there's nothing that you have done or are going to do you know, that will determine your value and worth to that degree. The value and worth that you carry was purchased for you and you did nothing. <clears throat> that making sense? In life, you either work from significance or you constantly work for significance. Can I put it to you that there's a difference between having a good work ethic and perfectionism? Having a good work ethic means this, that you take pride or you find joy in the quality of the work produced. Perfectionism looks like this. You find joy, you find pride in the opinions, positive opinions of others. There's the difference. You know, we, we, we talk about this often as a church. You know, we're an excellent church. We're after excellence. We want to do good. We want to do well. We want to produce good things. The outcome is the same. Good stuff are produced. But as I said earlier, the Lord is not just concerned about what you do. He's concerned about how you do it. There's a difference between having a good work ethic and perfectionism. And the, the, the destructive thing about, about 
this whole thing that I'm describing is that opinions are always fleeting. You're not constant. You, know, you, you can't guarantee that that particular person for the rest of his life will have a favorable opinion of you. You can't guarantee it. And you put yourself in a, a, a position of, of peril, in a position of danger, when you base your significance on a person's opinion, which isn't constant, which cannot be guaranteed. There's only one being, not even your spouse. There's only one being in all of existence that will always have a constant, favorable opinion of you, that will constantly affirm your value and worth, that will constantly tell you that it's significant. That's God. You're making sense. There is a war to rob you of significance. In common vernacular, uh, significance would sound like I am enough. There's a war to to convince you that you are not enough, you're not valuable, that you are not of worth, that you don't belong. Uh, We are are all familiar with the great apologist Ravi Zacharias, and uh, I I listen to his podcast fairly often, and Ravi uh, talks about um, last year where he uh, engaged uh, the largest uh, crowd of college students he has ever uh, done so you know, in, his, in all his years of ministry. Uh, there were 40,000 college students uh, packed in to listen to him talk. Uh, rep, uh, over 40 uh, nationalities represented. You know, Ravi is a, a brilliant man and he does this Q&A thing. And, uh, so they were polling the, the students, uh, millennials, you know, people my age, uh, of uh, you know, uh, some of the questions uh, that they wanted to post to Ravi and for Ravi to answer. And this is what Ravi said. You know, the top two questions that were posed that were, that were presented from a group of 40,000 millennials were these two questions. How do I deal with the enslavement of pornography? Question two, how do I resist the urge to kill myself? These were the two questions that, uh, that plagued that, that a generation didn't know the answer to. How do I deal with pornography and how do I resist the urge? to kill myself, to commit suicide. And Ravi goes on to say this in Ravi's brilliant fashion. He says, sensuality and suicide were the two major issues in the mind of the young. In the first, you really dehumanize and denude somebody else. In the second, you really dehumanize yourself by denuding yourself of any value and worth. The only possible way for you to engage in pornography is for you to dehumanize the individual. By What do I mean by that? By stripping the, va- the person of value and worth. That means to say that I have permission to not treat the person the way God treats her. Because if I recognize the, the amount of value and worth that was imputed into that person by God, how many of you know that I'll, I'll treat the person differently? I won't even engage in that. The second, how do you come to a place where you go, I need to kill myself, there is no hope, I don't belong on this earth. You have to first dehumanize yourself. Remove any form of value, worth, significance, and by extension, belonging. That's what Hitler did. The Holocaust, he dehumanized the Jews. These people were not of value and worth. And so we get to commit all these atrocities against these people because they have no essential value and worth. The question of our day is a question of value and worth. It's a question of value and worth. No, just just uh, yesterday I was reading the news and there, were, there was a you know there's another boy that committed suicide because of uh, results again. You know, um, sad. You know, and I was tracking the the st- statistics. You know, and every year that number seems to go up. You know, almost uh, doubling every year. And and that is sad. You know, what would allow a boy or 
bring a boy to such a place in his soul, in his internal world that says that I, I, I'm going to kill myself. So what happens when you place your significance, your value, your worth, your right to belong on this planet, on your ability to perform? Let me just tell you a truth. No, you, you can't perform all the time. You can't do it all the time. It's time for us to discover a significance that is not based on our ability to do well. It's not based on our ability to perform. It's not based on popular opinion, but a kind of security, a kind of significance that is found in Him who is constant. Today I want to talk to you uh, about something that I believe destroys the soul and robs you of value and worth. You know, I, like I said earlier, there is a war. There is a war that, that is waged against you, against the people of God, that attempts to rob you of value and worth, that attempts to distort the voice of a loving father, that attempts to convince you that you are of no significance and by extension of no place on the earth. There is a war that's waged against you. And I believe that living under accusation and condemnation is how that happens. And I titled my message this morning, Where Are Your Accusers? Where are your accusers? Now, I'm drawing inspiration from a passage of scripture in John uh, chapter 8, where Jesus asks the adulterous woman, Where are your accusers? You know, this is something that I, I want us to, I want to dive more into even in my personal time. You know, I think we're all familiar with the commands of Jesus, with the acts of Jesus. But how many of you know that in the Gospels, Jesus asks questions pretty often? You know, I, I, it's some crazy amount. And I believe these questions uh, gives, gives us insight to the way God thinks. It also gives us insight into the life in which he, he wants us to live. And so we're going to read this passage, John chapter 8, verse 1 to 11 together. It goes, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them as he was speaking. The teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd, saying, Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stood down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I go and sin no more. Where are your accusers? To gain better understanding of this passage of scripture that we just read, we have to understand adultery in the context of the first century. You know, today, popular you know, thought, media, movies has, have almost trivialized adultery. But in the first century, adultery was like one of the big, the big ones. You know, it was punishable by death. Okay, it, was, it was a big, big sin. And so, you know, the Pharisees, as we read, were trying to trap Jesus. You know, Jesus... This woman has sinned. We caught her in the act of adultery. There's no trial. There's there's none of that. No, she was caught in the act. And so they posed Jesus with this dilemma. Jesus, the law says that we should stone her. We should kill her. What say you? And they they put Jesus in this, this position where if Jesus were to enact the law, he would contradict the grace and mercy to which he's been preaching all, all this while. Right? And if he were to not enact the law, then he would contradict whatever Moses said. And so they, they put him in a bind and 
they were like trying to entrap Jesus. And then, you know, Jesus goes on the ground and starts writing on the ground, you know. And scholars for thousands and, uh, for, I don't know, maybe a thousand years have been trying to figure out what Jesus wrote on the ground, you know. Some people believe that, you know, he wrote the Ten Commandments on, on the ground and like, I was the lawgiver, so I get to. And some people, you know, say that Jesus wrote down all the sins of the Pharisees and they were like, oh, he knows our sins. I don't know, it doesn't matter. <laughs> You know, it doesn't matter, you know, you might get caught up in that, but really, you know, I, I, it, to me, okay, it, it doesn't matter. It's like Ray's parentage, you know. Ray Skywalker, Ray Konobi, doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter, really. Trust me, I'm a Star Wars fan. It doesn't matter. It's there to trip you up. I think, okay, to me, the big question is this. Why did Jesus ask her that question? Where are accusers? I don't believe he, need, he needed to. He could just go, you know, hey, you know, forget them. Your sins are forgiven, now go. But he asked her, where are your accusers? And we have to notice about Jesus, that Jesus was intentional with everything he did. You know, we, we read a story uh, uh, last Sunday that talked about a man who was healed at the gate, beautiful, that he walked, he leapt, and he praised, that he experienced healing, body, soul, and spirit. That's the kind of healing that Jesus wants you to experience. Fullness, completeness, wholeness. Now, I'm reminded of this story where, where Jesus uh, walks past a man who was blind uh, since birth. And we're all familiar with the story. Jesus knelt on the ground, he picked up mud, he spat into the mud, and then he boah over the blind man's face. And then the blind man like instantly got his sight back. Let me, let me uh, give you a bit of understanding of that act. In first century, in the first century, whenever a person is born with some form of infirmity, it always, it always equates to the person has sin or the person's father has sin. That's the common perception. If you are born with infirmity, if you have sickness, God has cursed you because you are a sinner. And the people of that day would express their displeasure and communicate this association by shaming the individual. The popular phrase, a stumbling block, actually originated from a cruel practice in the first century where they would put blocks of wood to trip people who were blind, to shame them, to communicate this association. And one of the ways they communicated displeasure and disassociation is by spitting on people with infirmity. What did Jesus do? He took mud, he spat in it, and he put it over the eyes of the blind man, and he was healed. He used what was a form of shame, what was used to communicate displeasure and disassociation to bring him into wholeness. He's that kind of God. He will use what is, was used against you for your good. Can I suggest to you that that man didn't just experience physical healing. He experienced a healing that was internal as well. Healing of his soul. That's the kind of healing that, that God wants you to experience. And so, think about this woman again. The adulterous woman. Okay? We know at the end of it, he's, he forgives her of her sin. Neither do I go and sin no more. And we know that is Spiritual restoration, right? She was alienated from God because of a sin and God restored her in that regard. But he says to her, where are your accusers? Is there no one to condemn you? Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Can I put it to you that he restored her? By, that word, by those words, he restored her soul. She was accused, condemned, Shamed. How many of you know that adultery is only possible when there are two parties? There's only one, one, one lady being charged here. You know, and they, they caught her. You know, Jesus restores her by removing all form of accusation and condemnation. He restores her soul. Am I making sense to you? 
When we live under accusation, our soul is in peril. There's a difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction says this, you made a mistake, that is not who you are. Condemnation says this, you made a mistake, now you are a mistake. And you are a lesser person. It's a real clear difference between conviction and condemnation. The voice of the enemy will seem to suggest to you that you are the sum total of your mistakes. That your value and worth is defined by your mistakes. It's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation and accusation, it devalues, it dehumanizes, and it robs you of significance, your worth and value. In Genesis chapter 3, after the fall of men, it says this, that Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to men, saying, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Then catch this, this is what God said. Who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Catch this. God didn't say, what made you think that way? Or why did that occur to you? God said, who told you you were naked? The suggestion is this, that there is a voice apart from God's voice that speaks a different thing. It tries to convince you of a different thing. The challenge of our Christian faith is not our ability or inability to hear God's voice. The challenge of our Christian faith is our ability to hear the voice of others. To be defined by someone else's voice. Are you with me? Yes, this is yes. And so I will close this message with a question. Who are your accusers? I want to identify three sources of accusation. I want to expose these uh, three sources. These are uh, three uh, voices that seems to, to uh, that seems to challenge God's uh, perspective of who you are. That seems to challenge your worth and value. I'm going to expose these. Uh, voices, and I'm going to end off each point with a list of questions that uh, I, I want to pose, and I, I believe that will give you insight into where you're at in your soul life. Are you with me? The first voice of accusation is the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. You know, we read uh, earlier in Genesis, you No, know, God posed the question to Adam and Eve, who are your accusers? You know, we don't have to do a lot of reading. You no, know, just Genesis chapter 3, read Genesis 1 and 2, and we'll be able to get uh, the context of, of what's happening. How many of you know that there are only four parties in the Garden of Eden? Okay, there's God, there's Adam, there's Eve, and there's devil, right? Adam didn't go to Eve and be like, Whoa, Eve! Like, you know, you're naked. Eve didn't go to Adam like, whoa, Adam, you're naked. And God posed the question, so God wasn't the one that went, whoa, you are naked. There's another voice. There was someone else in the garden that convinced them that they were naked, that they were to be ashamed, that they were to distance themselves, alienate themselves from God. And that is the Accuser of the brethren, Satan. You know, we fast forward to Jesus in the wilderness and you know, we've talked about this uh, set of scriptures often and we all know that when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you know, it didn't look like the devil coming to him with like, you know, a red jumpsuit, horns and a pitchfork. And like, aha! You know, it, it didn't look like that. It, it looked like thoughts. It looked like you know, Jesus battled with, with thoughts in, in the garden and one of those thoughts you know, that the devil planted in Jesus' head was, if you are the son of God, you will do so and so. If you are God's son, if you are beloved, if you belong to God, you will perform or you will do such a thing. 
See, the strategy of the enemy has not changed. In all his lies, in all his accusations, the big question he's posing to you is, are you really valuable? Are you really of worth? And are you really significant? And he tries to get you in this trap where you have to prove your significance by your actions. But that doesn't work. Because that that significance that you and I have didn't even occur because of our actions. And so because it wasn't produced by our actions, how can it be upkeep and how can it be proven by our actions? So he gets you in this trap where you're constantly trying to overcome the accusation where there's no end in, in, in mind, there's no end in sight. Does it make sense? One of the ways you know, I, I, I realized over the years that he convinces you of your lack of value and worth is by reminding you of your past. Because you did such a thing, that is now your identity. And your personhood is the sum total of your past mistakes. There's a great verse in Isaiah 43. It goes, I, even I, speaking of the Lord, am he that blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. It's Isaiah 43. We're all familiar with the story of uh, Sarah and Abraham, right? You know, how God promised uh, Sarah and Abraham a, a son. You know, and Sarah was in, in, in OH. And the Bible says this of, of Sarah, that when God spoke, Sarah began to laugh. And not in the Holy Spirit laughter, like show kind of laugh. She, in some translation, it says that Sarah mocked God. And then she thought God wasn't looking, no? and God was like, Sarah, why did you laugh? And Sarah was like, no Lord, I did not laugh. You know, trying to lie and <laughs> trying to you know, convince God that she, oh, I didn't really do it, I think maybe you see wrong. And so, <laughs> trying to... to, to uh, Cover up, you know, and, and that was Sarah, you know, and we know that Sarah and Abraham, they, they uh, tried to make things happen in their own way, and Ishmael happened, and we're all familiar with stories, that uh, passage of scripture. In the book of Hebrews, um, uh, there's a, a chapter that um, accounts for uh, the various patriarchs of faith, the various people that have gone before us, and uh, accounts of their exploits, and accounts of uh, uh, their walk with God. And this is what the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, says about Sarah. Can we have that That slide up? I want you to see this. It says this, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Is it the same Sarah? (laughs) Fascinating, right? Fascinating. You know, we, we all know that Sarah had her challenge. You know, she, she wasn't sure. She struggled. She battled with her faith. But in Hebrews, when it speaks about Sarah, it talks about her being a woman of faith who considered God faithful. God said that he will not remember your transgressions. When you repent, when you go to the Lord in repentance and he forgives you, he no longer holds your past mistakes against you. What does that say to you and me? It says this, that every time we remember our past, every time we feel guilt, condemnation and accusation from our past mistakes, can I suggest to you that that is not the voice of God? It's the accuser. And every time we hold someone else accountable for their past mistakes and actions, even after we forgive them, we partner with a power that is not of God. That means to say that you have to develop some form of structure and discipline in relationships that when you forgive a person, when a person asks you of forgiveness and you say, I forgive you, you have to intentionally and purposefully make that decision to not treat a person like their mistake. I'm not saying, you know, like a robber, you know, robs you and you say, I forgive you, robber, and like, come leave my house. No, that's, that's dumb. That's trust. <laughs> trust is earned, you know. But you, you and I both know that, you know, sometimes, you know, we, we forgive, but we carry that offense. We carry 
grudges. And that's partnering, of, partnering with uh, he who is the accuser. I would like to uh, give you some signs that you know, you're still uh, off. Um, you know, if you um, resonate with any of these points I'm about to bring up, you know, I believe that these are signs that you're still living under the accusation of the enemy, that you're still living, uh, being bound by your past mistakes. These are some signs. You, know, you spend a lot of time wondering how life would have turned out if only you had chosen a slightly different path. You sometimes feel like the best days of your life are already behind you. You replay past memories in your mind like a scene from a movie over and over again. You sometimes imagine saying or doing something different in past memories to try and create a different outcome. You punish yourself and convince yourself you don't deserve to be happy. When you make a mistake or experience an embarrassing episode, you keep repeatedly replaying the event in your mind. You invest a lot of time in thinking about all the things that should have or could have been done differently. If you battle with any one of those thoughts, you know, my suggestion to you is that you're still bound by your past, that you are still living under the accuser who constantly reminds you that you are the sum total of your past mistakes. God is he who remembers your transgressions no longer. God is the one who frees you from your past and gives you hope for your future. Second voice of, of accusation. I call it the opinions of the crowd. The opinions of the crowd. Dave Ramsey says this brilliant thought. We buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. <laughs> I'll read that again. We, buy th- we often buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Who is the crowd? You know, um, if you're an athlete or have been an athlete, I have never been an athlete, so this is second-hand information. But uh, as an athlete, you know that there's a difference between the crowd and the coach. Right? There's a difference between the crowd and the coach. The crowd will celebrate your successes and will criticize you when you make mistakes and when you fail. Right? The coach, he'll do the same thing. You know? He'll celebrate your successes and criticize you when you fail. But the difference is, 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 is paramount for us to, to uh, understand the difference. And the difference is this, that there's an, a difference between accusation and correction. The crowd accuses. You should have done better. You are not good. Stop playing. The coach, he will criticize. He will give you constructive feedback. But all of that is with a vision for your growth your betterment, and your eventual success. That's the difference between accusation and correction. It sounds the same, but it's the heart of the individual that you allow into your life that matters. Who do you allow to speak into your life? Voices of accusation or voices of correction, people who are invested into your growth and your success. Oftentimes, we go about impressing people who honestly don't matter. I'm not saying that they're not significant, but they don't care about your success. They don't care about you thriving. And we impress these people who have no concern, who do not care. Those people, they are the crowd. I want to, you know, I, I think this is a pretty simple way of looking at it, but I, I want to talk about this thing that I have in my life. I, I call it the, the God spot, okay? I know, it sounds weird, but okay. This is circles. <laughs> and, you know, uh, uh, I, I, I will look at the dot as uh, access to my heart, uh, ability to speak into my life, or opinions that I weigh, uh, significantly or people's feedback that are considered to a great measure and you know God is right smack in the middle you know I know my priorities and let's look at the next circle the next circle you know it can be spouse family you know people who are really invested in you and the next circle um, you know you can look at friends and then the next circle 
know, acquaintances, you know, people that you hire and buy, you know, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently in a place where, you know, I need a lot of input on my marriage, I need a lot of input about how to do life and family really well, and so, you know, the last circle, I put it as uh, strangers and Tiger Woods, you know, <laughs> Tiger Woods didn't, didn't do so hot in the, in the marriage department, and so I'm not going to give him a ton of access to speak into my marriage. <laughs> I'm not... The level of access you give to a person, to your heart, should be correlated to the amount of investment or the person's willingness to be invested in your life. The mistake we make is that we weigh the opinions, the, the, the uh, criticisms of people who are so far out in the circle a lot more than the people who actually matter, who actually are invested in you. We have all done that. You know, we all had our teenage years where we were like, forget parents. You know, I don't listen to parents. I listen to my friends or I listen to the popular kids. <laughs> or I listen to uh, celebrities you know, on Instagram who have no clue who I am. It's true, right? I think everyone's being silent because it's true. <laughs> I'm not saying stop being teachable and receptive to feedback. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the weight to which you put an, in, an opinion should be correlated to the access and trust you are given to the person. How does that look practically? Okay. This is a really simplistic way of looking at it, but maybe you know, Amy gives me some feedback. Okay, or like maybe you need to look at this area, and I haven't thought about this area before. Because she said it, I will spend days mulling over it, thinking about it, because you know, she is invested into my success. If a stranger goes to me and be like, yo dude, you need to change this, stop wearing hats. I'm not going to give the person time of day, I'm not going to think, oh, maybe I should stop wearing hats, because a stranger said so. I'm not. It's so simple, right? It's a very simple way of looking at it. But the truth is, all of us struggle with managing feedback, with managing criticisms. The truth is, you know, you get criticized every day. Whether you, you think you, you are or you're not. Okay? Because people, okay, mainstream media, everything, you know, it, it seems to suggest to you that you are not enough, that you need to do a better job. And if you don't do a better job, that you are not valuable, you're not of worth, you're not significant. Like I said, there's a difference between accusation and correction. And making sense. Living under accusation will cause you to be someone else for somebody else because, you, because who you are isn't enough to be of worth and of value. Here are some signs that you're living bound to the opinions of the crowd. You feel responsible for how other people feel. You find it easier to agree with people rather than express a contrary opinion. You often apologize even when you don't think you did anything wrong. It's true. You go to great lengths to avoid conflict. You don't usually tell people when you're feeling offended or your feelings are hurt. You tend to say yes when people ask you for favors, even if you really don't want to do anything. You put a lot of energy into trying to impress people. If you hosted a party and people didn't seem to be enjoying themselves, you'll feel personally responsible. That's me, man. That's why when you don't smile in church, I, I feel very burdened. Andre, it's a sad boy. You know? Sad boy underscore 90. You seek praise and approval from people in your life often. You don't have to say amen anymore. I'm just kidding. And here's the last one. You often feel overscheduled and overburdened by all the things you have to do. Those are signs that you're still living bound or under, still living under the accusation of the crowd. The crowd determines your boundaries. The crowd determines your ability to succeed. The crowd determines your schedule. The last voice of accusation, as I come to a close, is the inner voice of criticism. The inner voice of criticism. There's a popular saying that goes, we are our harshest critic. And we all do it to some extent. You know, it, it might look like you know, 
oh man, Andre, you made a mistake. You're so stupid. You know, you, all, all of us have, have done it before. Oh, so stupid. Come on, man. You can do better. Oh, you suck, Andre, you know. It could look as, as, as uh, mild and trivial as that to, you know, even um, self-abuse. You know, or that constant need to prove yourself or that constant feeling of inadequacy that manifests in the, in the form of overcompensating. The Bible says this, you know, that, that we ought to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. You are incapable of true love for the people around you until you learn how to love yourself. It seems so oxymoronic because we, we think of love as this like, I don't care, I don't regard myself in, in any degree. And by doing so, I love the people around me. But the Bible seems to suggest that, hey, if you want to be effective in your love for other people, you need to work on yourself. I'm making sense. Here's why I believe we are critical of ourselves often. The reason you are critical of yourself is because you perceive to have less than someone else and by extension, less valuable than someone else. Oftentimes, our self-criticism is not based on I want to do better, you know, I want to be a better person. It's not. Often, the, the, the foreboding sense of self-criticism comes from comparison. It comes from the perception that I am less valuable and of worth because someone else has more than me. I'd like to close with, with uh, signs that you're still living under the inner voice of self-criticism that thrives the seedbed of comparison. It is difficult for you to listen to other people share their success stories. You worry that other people perceive you as a loser. It sometimes feels that like no matter how hard you try, everyone else seems to be more successful. You feel disgust rather than joy toward people who are able to achieve their dreams. It's hard to be around people who make more money than you do. You feel embarrassed by your lack of success. You sometimes imply to others that you're doing better than you actually are. It's a word for that. It's called Tuopausian. <laughs> Multi-language church. And the last one, you know, I, I believe this is the most destructive. You secretly experience joy when a successful person encounters misfortune. Until you get rid of that inner voice of criticism, you are incapable of true connection. It robs you of your relationships. It destroys it. It's true. You are unable, unable, sorry, not unable. You are unable to genuinely celebrate a person because you're critical of self. And we all know this, that the people who are the most critical of themselves are often the most critical of other people, whether they verbally express it or not. We all battle with it to some degree, even, even me. But until we get rid of that voice, we rob ourselves of a healthy soul life. In closing, I'd like to read a verse over us. It's in Romans chapter 8. It says this, so now there is no condemnation, I believe by extension accusation, for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you. How do we get free from the voices of accusation, from the voices that seems to tell us a different thing, from the voices that tell us that you are no longer significant, that you are not of any value, of any worth? And you're the sum total of your mistakes. How do we get rid of that voice? So we discover that we belong to Him. That true, lasting significance. That truth that sets us free. Can we stand? How many of you were helped by that? Yeah.
Awesome. Thank you, Melody. <laughs> you know, I want to end off with, with a thought. Um, you know, for, for most of us, you know, I, I think um, all of us have been on a quest or might still be on a quest to find meaning and purpose on the earth, right? You know, uh, all of us, yes, yeah? We're all trying to find our purpose and purpose often looks like, why am I on planet earth, right? You know, I don't know whether you wake up some mornings and, you know, think to yourself like, why am I here? You know, why, why, did, why do you create me, God? You know, why am I here? And uh, I know it's a really simple way to, to, to look at it, but you know, I believe it's the, the chief pursuit of every believer. You know, the, the word purpose uh, in the Greek is actually the word protesin. And protesin occurs one other time in the Bible. And it's used to describe uh, the, the showbread that was found in the tabernacle of Moses. And we know it commonly as the bread of the presence. You know, I believe that our purpose is the presence. Our purpose, you know, where we thrive, where we find meaning and significance is in the presence of God. And here's what the enemy would like to do to you. Just like he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He accuses you, condemns you, suggests to you a different thing. And you, by your own decision, alienate yourself from the presence of God. You know, it might look like, you know, you come in here and you're disengaged or you come in here and worship is going and you feel that sense of unworthiness and you're like, I'm not going to lift my hands. It could look like, you know, I'm just going to sit outside. It it could could look like, you know, I'm just not going to show up. It could look like differently, you know. Some of you might be in here but you are far away. You're far off. You know. That's why accusation and condemnation does it. it. It robs you of that connection with God. And my suggestion to you is that it is only in that connection, it's only in discovery that you belong to Him that truly and fully sets you free, makes you complete, makes you whole. You might be on a mission to discover completeness and wholeness in something else. You might be on a mission to try and figure out this thing for yourself. But can I put it to you that you will come to the end of your own ability and find that you're not able to get yourself free. True freedom, wholeness and completeness is only found in the presence. Amen. So in, in, in closing, I'd like us to close our eyes and, and just reflect uh, reflect on, on, on the word for, for a bit. And I'll point out three voices of accusation. The accuser of the brethren, he who suggests to you that your past defines you. The opinions of the crowd people who criticize you, people who try to make you be someone that you're not. In the inner voice of criticism, that which is honestly equivalent to self-hatred, that which tells you that you're not worthy of value. Very eye close, just begin to think and, and ponder on that. And ask yourself the honest questions. Am, am I living under accusation? Am I truly being me? Or something else trying to define me? Ask yourself the question, do I feel like I'm of value, I'm of worth? Maybe some of you in this room, you struggle with suicidal thoughts. God wants to set you free. Spend some time, come on. Engage with God. just a few months I'd like to pray for a group of people and uh, here's a group that I want to pray for you know if you feel uh, bound trapped in accusation you know you you feel like over the years you know you have progressively becoming you have progressively become someone that uh, you know in your heart of hearts that you're not you're trying to constantly trying to impress constantly trying to prove yourself and you know that you're not fully you or you believe that you when you're fully you that you're not worthy of belonging value and worth I'd like to pray for you and I believe the love of God is going to come in this place like a blanket and it's going to rid cast out 
any form of accusation and condemnation and gives you the grace to find true value and worth and belonging. Because God says that you are of value and worth. Not because of what you do, but because of who you are. So with every eye closed, if you like to respond to that word, you're saying, I, I, I'm living under accusation now and I want to be set free. I want to be fully me and discover value and worth in Christ Jesus. I'd like to pray for you. If there's anyone, I want you to lift your hands. I'll pray for you if I see your hands go up. Is there anyone? Thank you, I see your hands. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now I'm just going to give it a couple more seconds and all. You know, right? You're still living under the opinions of other people. And you're bound. Is there anyone else? You struggle with your past. Yeah, thank you, Asians. Thank you. Right, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who no longer holds us bound by our past mistakes. That you are the one who silences the voice of every accuser, every condemnation. You are he who silences the voice of the enemy. Lord, we thank you that your word supersedes the opinions of others. Lord, we thank you that you saw value and worth in us while we were yet sinners, you sent your son to die for us, saying that we are worthy, we are purchased with a price that now our value is no longer defined by what we do, but by who was sent for us, gave his life for us. We thank you that we were worth every drop of the blood that was shed for us. God, we ask, and in our lives, for the rest of our lives, God, we will live believing that. We will live knowing that we are truly significant. We will live not having to constantly prove ourselves to impress the people around us. We will live free from our past actions. We will live in response to the price that was paid for us. God, may we carry our cross that which it's a sign of God's love and acceptance of us. And live out the rest of our lives free from accusation, free from condemnation. You know, the Bible says this, that we worship in spirit and in truth. And the word truth there means nothing hidden. You know, we sang this song earlier about our soul's singing to God and so it's so is is that internal world it's all that's within you blessing his holy name it's not just lip service it's not just words that you proclaim but everything within you blessing the God can I, can I put it to you that you can't truly worship until all that's within you is known all that's within you is free from accusation all that's within you is no longer bound So even as we make the decision to be free from accusation this morning, I would like us to, with our souls, with all that's within us, declare a song to Jesus. In always begin to lift your voices.